You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so Be'ezra Hashem tonight, we're going to be continuing our series of shirim on the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh and the Holy Baal Shem Tov. And after introducing just a little bit about the context through which we're going to understand the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, which we discussed last week, we can understand why this series of shirim is going to be different than previous series. It's not going to be a flow of ideas. It's not going to be reviewing sugyos or key essential patterns of thought that emerge within the writings of the Baal Shem Tov and his Talmidim. But rather, what we're going to focus on is what we spoke about last week. Small nekudos, small points, small points of light that emerge from within the Baal Shem Tov and the Baal Shem Tov's neshama and the Giluyim that HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent down into the world through the Nisham of the Baal Shem Tov. We're going to look at focused, chosen teachings. According to my humble understanding, speak most deeply to me. And therefore, I've chosen these pieces to speak about in particular. But with the understanding that even though we're only grasping a small idea of the Baal Shem Tov, a small teaching amongst thousands of teachings, both similar and dissimilar. Nevertheless, the avoida of what it means on a certain level to be a Talmud of the Baal Shem Tov is to learn to deeply internalize the idea that somebody who grasps a part of the whole is in truth grasping the entirety of the whole. And in truth, what this means on a psychological level, beyond the theoretical level in terms of understanding the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, that within each teaching of the, the Besht, we can find the DNA of all of the teachings. It also, on a psychological level, means that to be a student of the Besht, to be somebody who attempts to live their, light, their lives with the light of the tzaddikim that came down through the Besht, means to live our lives with this attention, with this mindset at all times, with this nekuda of kavana, which is that whatever I am doing, wherever I find myself, whatever I am studying and whatever I am engaged in, externally, internally, upwards, downwards, hakol sham, everything is there. Everything is present, folded into that nekuda which stands in front of the person. As Rabbi Nachman, the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, and on a certain level, the direct continuity of the Baal Shem Tov. 
the story goes that Rabbi Nassim of Nimerov, the Taman Mufak, the Taman Mufak of Rabbi Nachman, once asked his Rebbe, and he said, Rebbe, tell me what is the most significant spiritual activity that you engage in? Where is it that you find the most light? And Rabbi Nachman answered without skipping a beat. He said, whatever I'm doing at the present moment, whatever I'm engaged in right now, for somebody to say such a thing, it has to be a great-grandchild of the Baal Shem Tov. Because it's the Baal Shem Tov who teaches us that when I break apart, when I split open and melt into a million pieces, don't fear that you've lost the whole. Don't fear that you've lost the ability to connect to that which is essential and true. Because that which is essential and true has now just expressed itself in a myriad of different ways. That no matter what you are doing, no matter where you are at that moment, if you settle the mind properly and you set the intention of your heart and your eyes upon the essence of the matter, the vistas of experience rest within that point itself. There's nothing else to do at that moment. Kavana means that I am so attached to what is present in my mind right now that nothing else exists. There's nowhere to run. There's nothing else to do because everything I could theoretically and possibly do is contained within what is in front of me right now. And like we said, this radical transition from looking at the world through the spectacles of lack and deficiency, which was the typical way of looking at oneself prior to the revelation of the Baal Shem Tov, versus the spectacles of fullness and enoughness through which we are allowed to view the world after the emergence of the best. That is the difference between looking at where I am right now and saying, there's so much more that I need to be doing. There's so many other things that are vying for my attention. And the goal in theory would be to just be able to accomplish as much as I can in one fell swoop without any kavana, without any wholeheartedness. But after the Baal Shem Tov, the teaching is that because I am able now to look at the world through the position of strength, from a position of unconditional positive self-regard, from a perspective of enoughness, of wholeness, wherever I look, whatever I am doing, whatever point I am engaged in, that is what I need to be focusing on right now. This nakuda, this idea manifests itself and it spreads out into so many of the different expressions and iterations of the Besht's Torah in terms of the radical understanding of Hashkacha Pratis, of the divine engagement and governance over every single thing that I can feasibly and imaginably engage with in my life, from the most degraded to the most elevated, Whatever I am doing at that moment, according to the Shita of the Baal Shem Tov, when it comes to Hashem's direct engagement with me in my life at that moment, wherever I am, there He is. Wherever I find myself, there He is. There's nothing devoid of God. And therefore, there is no encounter or moment in my life that is not suffused and saturated with the potencies of the all. So that when I dig into the part that broken shard of experience that I find myself in, if I have enough belief and I have enough trust and I have enough attention and enough focus, and I'm able to fight against the, the streams of distraction for but a moment, I can find everything there is to find.
I can taste the light of Mashiach. I can experience a moment of olamecha tirabachayacha. I have seen my world. I don't want anymore. I don't need anything because everything is right here. Again, like we said, the best was not simply a historical arrival of a radical innovation of spirituality in reaction to certain historical as well as political and sociological spiritual calamities, but rather, as we saw in the name of the Nesiva Shalom and the name of the Sheir Yisrael, the Vlednikar, and as all of our tzaddikim tell us, the best was a giloi. It was a revelation from within the storehouse of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This neshama of Rav Yisrael Baal Shem, Roshet Tevos Shevi, Shin Beis Yud, the Kamarna Rebbe, who although he never met the Baal Shem Tov face to face, he was hundreds of years removed from the Baal Shem Tov. Nevertheless, he considered him a Talmud Mufak of the Baal Shem Tov. He considered himself a direct pupil and student of the Baal Shem. And he says that Alisa Lamarom Veshivisa Shevi, that when Moshe Rabbeinu ascended on high to retrieve Shevi, to retrieve that gift, that thing that doesn't belong in this world, but Moshe Rabbeinu drew it down, he says that Shevi is Roshe Tevos Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and it's also the Roshe Tevos of Yisrael Baal Shem, the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh. Meaning to say that the light of the best, the light of this individual, this neshama, is a light that didn't belong in the world until it arrived. Which means that some of the teachings that the best reveals to us are teachings that theoretically could not have been said until the best said them. Now that doesn't mean that they weren't contained within the potency of the teachings of the Ari and the, Shem, and the, the Rashbi and Moshe Rabbeinu. Doesn't chas v'shalom mean that the Besh was revealing something that was not part and parcel of the very fabric of the Torah that was given over at Har Sinai? But what it means is that until the Besh came along, it was under lock and key. And with the Besh, there was an allowance for the people, for those of us who find ourselves at the edges of experience, at the limit of the limit, at the lowest possible imaginable space where human consciousness can still exist, at the lowest possible imaginable configuration in which hope for change can exist, where we find ourselves. And that concealment within the concealment, what the Besh did was he gave us the key to unlock and allow these waters to flow down to the lowest point imaginable. And quite literally, to, to be Mekayim, to, to fulfill the, the promise that Mashiach made the Besh offer, which was that if you want to know when I'm going to arrive, you want to know when I'm going to come into the world and fix things, it's when your wellsprings spread forth into the outside. It's not such a chiddish for the lights of spirituality to find themselves expressed on the inside, in the panim, in that place of interiority, of intimacy, where no distractions disturb the mind or the heart, Theoretically, sociologically speaking, historically, it meant sitting within the walls of the base medrash, studying Torah all day, with no engagement with this worldliness, with no engagement with the antinomies and the anxieties that rest at the very heart of human experience. It's another thing entirely for that light to express itself outside, 
specifically to that place of chutz, specifically into that place of the outside where the comfort of the inside is no longer available, where the light of being inside the womb of Kedusha is no longer ever present to a person, but in the outside where things go bump in the night, in the forest where things are terrifying and frightening, where wolves howl at night and where bears attack and where frightening things go bump, that's specifically where Mashiach wanted the Baal Shem Tov's Torah to be revealed. And there's another statement that the Besht makes in that famous letter that he wrote to his brother-in-law of Gershon of Kitov, may the merit protect us, where he says as follows, and he says, remember, beyond all things remember, that when you look at a letter of tefillah or Torah, when you look at any iteration, every letter that you encounter, and again, for our purposes, the letter represents that small fragment. A letter is not a word. The Baal Shem Tov could have said, in every word that you look at, you will find, etc. But the Besh said instead, in every letter that you look at, meaning even in those things which don't appear to be a whole in and of themselves, but rather at first glance appear to be fragmented, broken pieces of some original primordial experience that is broken and shattered and melted. But what the Besh teach us is, teaches us is that every letter that you encounter, every os, be sure to remember that it is suffused and saturated with olamos, neshamos, ve'elokus. That every letter, if you break it open deep enough, you will uncover worlds, souls, and godliness. Ravitcher Meyer Morgenstern has a profound 10 to 12 page essay on this in Yamachachma Tafshin Ayin Aleph where he discuss, describes exactly what this means. Sisrei Torah, Meshashis, and Mebereshis, secrets of Torah that have not been revealed since the six days of creation. But what it means for our purpose right now is that every nakuda that we encounter, every point that we encounter, every individual teaching of the best that we encounter, as well as every moment of experience that we engage in throughout our long, very often tiring and backbreaking days, is that every nikuda, even the smallest point, contains within itself olamos neshamos elokus, vistas of experience, spiritual possibility that has been waiting for an infinite amount of time, from prior to creation, for us in that very moment to encounter it and elevate it and fix it and rectify it and sew it back up together and to be miached yichudim kamoischa and to make unifications like the Baal Shem Tov, to find unity in the heart of disparity. And the teaching, the individual teaching that we're going to be looking at tonight, Bezrus Hashem, is going to be the teaching that is brought down throughout the writings of the students of the Besht. It's also brought down in some of the original writings of the recorded teachings of the Besht, the Kesar Shem Tov, in particular the Kahas edition with the beautiful and, and remarkable footnotes that Rav Shokat brought down as well as in Savo Sarivash, in the will, the spiritual will of the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh, of Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem. And it's brought down in the writings of the Kamarna, and it's brought down in the writings of the Meshiloyach, and it's brought down in the writings of the Svas Emes and Rav Tzadok. So it's an idea that originates within the original iterations of the base Medrash of the Besht, but it finds itself in the most modern and, and kind of existentially suited 
teachings of the students of the students of the students of the Besht, which highlights the truth value of it, to show how it existed in the time of the Besht as well as in the time of brokenness. And the statement is as follows. Shamati mifurash mifimoyri. I heard explicitly from the mouth of my teacher, says the Tolus Yaakov Yosef. The place where a person is thinking, that's where they find themselves entirely. And the words of the wise are rooted in the secrets of Torah, meaning this is not some pithy statement, but rather this is a statement that is rooted in the depths of the sugyos of Kabbalah and the Raz and Deraz and the secrets of secrets. Phrased differently, Shamati Mimoyri, and this is in Parsha Shlach and the Tolos Yaakov Yosef, I heard from my teacher, my master, the point at which a person's mind reaches is where a person finds themselves in their entirety. And there's different iterations of this teaching with different nuances, which are deserving of, of specific focus. But for our sake, what we're going to try and understand is what does the Baal Shem Tov mean when he says that where our thoughts are, are where we are. That when we think, when we construct images in our mind, where we construct narratives in our mind, the attention that we pay to the inner story that we tell ourselves about our lives, it's not simply a random thought that is born out of a reaction to an external experience, but rather the thinking that we do, the machshava that we have, is constitutive of the very nature of the experience that we're having. That when I think something, when I awaken within my mind the power of attention, to focus on what that, that which needs to be focused on. My mind is not simply a reactionary vessel to experience, but rather my mind is the very formative space where experience takes on its shape. It, it's difficult to express the remarkable and radical transformation of what it means to be a human being that is contained in these few words of that in the place where I am thinking, that is where I am. Because before the best, things operated according to a causal process where cause and effect were separated from one another. I do something, I think something, and as a result of my thinking, as a result of my actions, there is a reaction that takes place afterwards. So that the thought that I had, or the thoughts that I have about a particular situation, are not the elements that form experience, but rather they're separate entities that have a distant and divorced relationship with what happens afterwards. 
or phrased differently, as a human being, I can experience frustration of sitting on a long line in a grocery store at the end of a long day, forgetting that I'm in water. And as a result of that experience in the grocery store, I can think, I can force myself to think afterwards that, okay, the frustrations that I experienced just now were worth it. They were worth it because I was able to cultivate the art of patience. So there's an experience that happens, reality takes place. And then my thought is a reaction to reality, which is not necessarily connected to reality, but it's the stories that I tell myself in order to face reality. We do this on every level. When faced with the unfathomable truths of history, when faced with the concealment within concealment that we encounter on a day-by-day -day basis, the Jewish heart is frightened, the Jewish heart is sensitive, the Jewish heart is broken. And so we tell ourselves narratives of theodicy, of reasons why things are really good, but the old vision is that our thinking and what happens in reality are not integrally connected. There's no inherent relationship between those two entities, but rather there is existence. And then there is the thinking that I have with regards to existence so that I learn how to look at existence in a different way. But what the Baal Shem Tov is teaching us is something different. What the Baal Shem Tov is teaching us is that the way that we think, the attention that we focus on, the mindset that we set for ourselves, the belief system which animates the way we look at reality is not simply reactionary to reality, but it is constitutive of the very nature of reality that the way I think becomes the reality of the situation. Because in my mind, if I see something as good, if I choose to look at things as being good, then the reality of the situation is that they are good. It's not simply some secondary defense mechanism against the difficult reality that is frightening, and therefore I need to pretend things are good. By thinking good, it becomes good. Like the tzaddikim of Chabad of Lubavitch teach us, in the name of the Baal Shem Tov, trach gut v'zayn gut. Think good and it will be good. That is not some secondary incidental relationship between the power of positive thinking in terms of reacting to the world, but rather our thoughts form our reality. The way that we choose to look at things is the very condition in which we live. The Baal Shem Tov is offering us a taste of a power that is beyond what we are familiar with. The Baal Shem Tov, based on the teachings of Yari, based on the teachings of Rashbi, based on the teachings of Moshe Rabbeinu, based on the light of the Torah, based on the Ratzon and the Chachma of HaKadosh Baruch Hu Kavyechol that is mislabesh itself and garbs itself and creates this world as we know it, so to speak. The secret uncovered by the best 
is that the mind of a Jew, the thinking of a Jew, is not simply a reaction to reality, but it's the very formation of reality. These are not simple defense mechanisms against the difficulties of life. These are the very mechanisms that transform life into what we think about. Now, I, I want to make very clear, at least for myself, there's a very fine line between what the Besht is saying and magical thinking, or what is termed the laws of attraction, the hulei lahavdil. I don't think the Besht is saying that if we think hard enough about something, that's what reality will give us. That's not what he's saying. For tzaddikim, maybe. What do I know? But for us, or for myself, for a teaching like this to be significant, for a teaching like this to carry the import that it deserves, the radical revolutionary nature of a teaching like this needs to be applicable to the post-post-post-modern consciousness that doesn't believe in anything anymore, that has lost sight in all value. When we confront the very real when we confront the very real reality that as human beings our control is profoundly limited that in the end of the day what we are in control of in our lives is not what happens on the outside like a sneeze in the middle of a shear but the only thing that we have control over is our reaction to that which happens. That the true nakuda of Bechira, the true nakuda of free will, of free choice, is to align our minds to face reality according to the paradigm of what the Besht is talking about. My thoughts don't influence reality. My thoughts are the very formation of reality. Reality is a jumbled text. It's an event, it's an experience that happens. It's my thoughts that give an interpretation to that text. And the way I think is where I find myself. If I see the experience as positive, that's where I am in my mind. Ah, externally, there's absolutely no proof that supports the fact that it's a positive experience. From what happens outside. What do we care what's going on on the outside? The goal of the Besh Torah is to create within ourselves the belief that we have the power to form our experiences. How could the Besh say such a thing? That's the question. How could the Basham Tavakadosh say? How could he offer us this teaching, this, this advice, this etza, that by thinking a certain way about something, by centering my mind and choosing to see the good and choosing to affirm reality and choosing to believe in a Kadosh Baruch Hu in spite of all of the concealment and choosing to say yes to the world in spite of it all, and pretending and acting as if and acting as ki'ilu, all my work is done. And that even though Mashiach is not here yet, to live in the space in our minds that Mashiach has arrived. And to offer the radical insight that yes, we're waiting for a collective redemption, but nevertheless, karva al-nafshi giyala, that the Besh teaches us that while we wait for the collective redemption and the historical redemption, which takes place outside of history, what we are armed with the power to engage in is our own individual redemptions that take place at every possible moment. 
each moment stands at the ready to be redeemed. Each moment is either a moment that draws a person further into the muck and the filth of experience that appears to be concealed and removed from godliness, or it serves as an opportunity to elevate and rectify and purify the broken pieces and show how they're truly light. And any moment that we choose to think an affirmative thought, what we are doing is we are bringing redemption to our soul. Karva el nafshi giyala. Where did the best get the chutzpah, the kedusha? Where did the best get the azus, the kedusha, to give us such a power? And like we said last week, the best revealed to us a new level of yichud. He spoke about the unity of Hakadosh Baruch Hu in a way that wasn't spoken about before, at least explicitly. Avada implicitly, it's within the writings of the Arizal. Avada, it's implicitly within the writings of Rashbi. It's absolutely certain that it is within the very fabric and DNA of the Torah HaKadosha. But what the best revealed to us was the, the secret of unity. The fact that Hevra, Simpson's not real. Simpson's not real. The concealment of God is simply apparent. And there are certain halachos to that apparent concealment. It doesn't mean that everything is God forbid godliness. The greatest Talmud of the Baal Shem Tov would, would be terrified at such a, a mistaken statement. At its core, everything is godliness, but we don't act that way, God forbid. But even though there are certain halachos that dictate the accessibility to the divine unity that permeates and saturates all of existence, nevertheless, what the Besh teaches us is that at the core of everything, Hashem is everything. Yichud is already present. It's not a question of drawing down something that was not there previously and then fixing things. It's a question of revealing that which was always there, but it was concealed. For the best, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was everywhere, and all appearances that spoke otherwise were simply achizas ha'enayim. They were trickery of the mind. It was trickery of confusion. And because ultimately at the core of all of the best teachings is this annihilating unity of the ever-present reality of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of les asar panu minei, that there is absolutely no place devoid of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's light, then the question is not what is the nature of reality. The question is how do I interpret reality? And if I choose to interpret reality with this awareness that things are ultimately good in spite of their symptomatic appearances. At that point, what I am accessing is a revelation of what truly is. When I think a certain way, if I choose to think positively for the moment, if I choose to think affirmatively, if I choose to say yes to the moment, if I choose to not fall into despair and fear and anxiety, and I elevate my fallen fear of anxiety and terror, to that lofty fear of the fear of Hashem. If I can elevate, as the Besh teaches us, that fallen attraction, that fallen love that I have towards the promised pleasures of the flesh and the mind and all of the broken pieces that we seek out with all of our energy, if I can elevate that back up to the place of the true desire, which is a desire for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, at that moment I have rectified and elevated that experience. Because the truest nature, the unconditional nature of reality is the ever-present nature of the infinite godliness and the infinite light of godliness. And what we need to do is we need to uncover 
We need to reveal that which is concealed. We're not drawing down that which was not present, chas v'shalom. We're revealing that which was always there except it was concealed. And the place where that concealment is unreve- where that concealment is unconcealed is within the mind of the individual. Within the neshama shabamaychi, within my soul, within my chelak eloikai ma'al. When I think a powerful thought of revealing HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the world, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is revealed at that moment. Like the Kamarna Rebbe teaches us all the time, a thousand times, in the name of all of the tzaddikim, in the name of the Baal Tov, that when a person recognizes within the darkest, doubled concealment imaginable, that when a person finds themselves encountering the deepest concealment of meaning and purpose and light and possibility and hope and courage and the wherewithal to move forward even slightly with one step in front of the other, when a person finds themselves in that broken down place, when a person looks around and all lights are extinguished and all the news bespeaks difficulty, when a person remembers in their mind that alufo shal olam nimtzasham, when a person remembers that the origin of all reality is there, yispardu kol It's not that we learn how to deal with the confrontation. It's that in drawing HaKadosh Baruch Hu down to that place, it's nishapech le'or. It's transformed immediately. Ah, it's still difficult. It's still painful. It's still frightening. It's still terrifying. We still have no idea what's going to happen. We still have no idea how we're going to continue. Okay, that's great, fine, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu is there with us now. And it transforms the entire situation. Walking in the valley in the shadow of death doesn't change. That's what I'm doing. That's what human beings do. The only difference is now you're with me. And it's not so scary anymore. And it all comes back to the promise that the best's father made him promise at the end of his life, where he said that promise me that you won't fear anything but HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You won't be afraid of anything but Hashem. Ah, there's still fear. Avada, there's fear, but Hashem is with you. When a person chooses to think a certain way, and it demands a, a remarkable amount of exertion of the mind, thinking positively, choosing to think good thoughts, choosing to affirm that which is in front of us at that moment is no simple task. Sometimes it demands all of the exertion necessary all of the koiches of the mind to not allow those kalvin de chatzifin, those brazenest dogs that we spoke about in the Shiran Shalashudis, to break through and pollute our mind with machshavas zaros, with foreign thoughts that bespeak hopelessness and despair and loss of power and loss of light. It takes effort to create those walls and those barriers to create that inner sanctuary of the mind, that koidesh hakadashim that holy of holies, that makom ha'aron she'enom in hamida, that place that is beyond measure because it's so dark. But the more effort we put in, we learn more and more that makom she'machshava she'ladam ha'ge'asham, sham hu kulo, that is where you are. Ah, it's a storm outside. It doesn't matter. Outside has absolutely no value when it comes to the inner experience of the way I face the things that happen to me. The Baal Shem Tov was not walking around this earth 
enjoying the pleasures of paradise. Internally, he was. But when a person studies the, the, the growth of the Baal Shem Tov, the stories and the people that he chose to spend time with, it was impoverishment, it was destitution, it was the darkness of the forest, it was terrifying, it was orphans and widows, it was the broken shards of experience. In the beginning, he had no interest in those who were misudar. The Baal Shem Tov did not want to spend time with people who had it together. The Baal Shem Tov wanted the beginning of his vision, his light, to be revealed specifically to the lowest possible denominator of what human experience is. To the ganavim, to the thieves, to the criminals, to the illusion dwellers, to those who were stuck in profane illumination and stuck within the dregs of this world. That's who the Besht was talking to. As Rabbi Nachman, his great-grandson, teaches us that my holy great-grandfather, his koyach came from being a, des- a descendant of David HaMelech. He comes from the place of David Malka Mashiach. And we all know the story of David Malka Mashiach, the broken experience of that destitute king, that destitute king who is in truth the Melech Elion. David HaMelech is representative of the true power of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this world, to transform darkness into light, impoverishment into wealth, inequity into virtue, hopelessness into hope. That's where the Besht was revealing his message. Not to think that this message of where you're thinking, that's where you are, is easy because you're thinking a positive thought. It's very difficult. It's counterintuitive to the nature of reality. But the Besh came to tell us that still, you have to. You have to believe in the power of your thought. You have to believe that your thoughts dictate the nature of what reality is for you. There's a beautiful teaching that's brought down in the Baal Shem Tov in Amrat Tzvila, in Parshas Noyach, in Ois Kuftas Zayin. Where the Baal Shem Tov is teaching on the Gemara, in Mesachas Brachos, that says that all of those who say Shema twice, that we silence them, we shut them up. And the Gemara asks, why would a person theoretically say Shema twice? And the Gemara answers that perhaps a person didn't have enough attention at that moment that they first said Shema, and so they had to repeat Shema again. And the Gemara continues with a secondary answer as to why it's not proper. But the Besht asks the Kashi, he says, the Kashi is still very real. What if a person didn't have the proper Kavana at the first moment? That's why they're repeating Shema. So what's the problem? So the Besht says something remarkable. He says, the problem is that if you think that your unattentive thoughts that when you say Shema without Kavana, when you're distracted in the world, when you're bothered in the world, when things are overwhelming to you, and you say Shema, you declare the faith in Hashem, and you don't have the proper Kavana, if you think that even though you didn't have the proper Kavana, Hashem didn't hear what you were saying, you have to be silenced because that's a complete misunderstanding of the Yichud of Hashem. Even when you said it, even when you recognize the light of Hashem in all of your confusion and all of your distraction and all of your concealment and all of those things that take away from Kavana, we have to have the deep faith that that was enough also. That where we were in our thoughts at that moment was enough. 
It was enough. It changes the reality of things. Rabbi Nachman rarely quotes from his great-grandfather. But in Torah Kuflam and Gimel, in the 133rd teaching in Makutim Aran, the last few lines of the teaching are as follows. And I heard in the name of the Baal Shem Tov, Sha'amar, that he said, Oy va'avoy, Oy va'avoy, Ki ha'oylam malayim oyreis v'soydois neflayim v'noyroim. The world is filled, is saturated, with profound secrets and visions, lights. V'hayad ha'katana oymedes b'fnei ha'enayim, u'ma'akeves me'lerois oyreis g'doylim. But the tiniest hand stands in front of the eyes and prevents us from seeing the true light of reality. The light of reality is ever present. The light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is present within all things, saturating all things, filling all things, surrounding all things. The distinction or the concealment is the result of our thinking, our conditioning our despondency, our unwillingness to believe that perhaps there's a plan beyond the appearance of things. But the opposite is true as well. If it's simply a hand that blocks the ability to see the light, then the power of thought, the power of choosing to focus my mind in a particular way, at the present moment, non-judgmentally, at that moment, that is my reality. Hashem is in my thought. My mind is enough of the worlds that I need to ascend in. The worlds are not outside of me. The worlds are inside of me. As a human being, I am a small world, and the world is just a large expression of me. As Rabbi Nachman says in Tarahe, that every single person has to say that I am the entirety of existence. The whole world was created for me, which means that all of reality is within my mind. And therefore, the way I think dictates the very nature of reality. To end with a story, because ultimately the koyach of what we're talking about now is rooted in the Baal Shem Tov's obsession with stories. The power of a story is the power of narrative for the individual to construct their own perception of things with no need to find external validation, with no need to find proof to our stories that we tell ourselves. But rather, it's a story and it's valuable because I believe it. It's not necessarily rooted in fact. It's not necessarily provable. But that's not because it's devoid of some provable element, but because it transcends the need for factual basis. The secret of Sipore Maisios, the secret of telling stories, which is what the Baal Shem Tov opened this path with, is that we have the power of narrative, that the stories we tell ourselves are the stories that become our reality. And when a person reads enough Sifuria of the Baal Shem Tov, when a person reads enough of the stories of the Besht, a person recognizes that we're still within the story of the Besht. We're still within the story of the ancient days that the Besht's great-grandson came to tell us. And we're still within the stories of Maise Bereshis, the stories of the Avos HaKadoshim. We're still within the story of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as the Sefer Yitzira tells us that the entirety of creation is but the Sefer, Sefer, Vesipor of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That we're the narration, we're the story of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. 
We live within the story and the power of the story is the power of suspending our intellect to believe that the power of our mind is the truth of reality even if we don't have external proof. I was struggling to find a story that I felt would kind of capture what I wanted to try and prove today. But with the help of a, a very dear friend of mine, I was able to come to this one. And this is found in the Light and the Fire of the Baal Shem Tov on page 148. Even one moment's consolation. The Baal Shem Tov once visited a woman who was critically ill, and he comforted her and he blessed her. And he said, may the merciful one send you complete healing. No, Rebbe, the woman said on her sickbed. She pleaded, swear by your portion in the world to come that I'll get well. And the Besht, as he would, he said, I swear to you, said the Besht, by my portion in the world to come that you will get well. Be strong and trust in the healer of all flesh. Sometime later, word came that the woman had died. The Besht's close disciples who were embarrassed by what had happened asked him, Master, Rebbe, Rebbe, why did you swear by your portion in the world to come that she would get well? I knew that she wouldn't recover, said the Besht. The heavenly decree was sealed and nothing I could do could change it. But she was so afraid. It was making her terribly depressed and miserable and it was ruining her last few days on this earth. What do I care about my portion in the world to come? If by losing it, I can bring about even one moment's consolation to a Jewish woman. The Baal Shem Tov is revealing to us that the Torah of the Baal Shem Tov is the Koyach to bring consolation to the tired Jewish people, to help the Jewish people as they find themselves in Ikvas of the Mashiach at the time of the heel that is so unconscious and broken and terrified and, and, and beat down. And we feel like we're on our deathbed and we feel like we're already dead. And the Baal Tov comes along and he says, no, I'll tell you a story that will give you chizuk. I'll tell you a story. Think that you're okay and you'll be okay. Ah, it turns out that you're not okay. In that moment of thinking that you're okay, you're okay. And that moment of feeling okay is a taste of the light of Mashiach. We're not okay yet. Things are not okay. But the promise of the best is that he's willing to give up his portion in the world to come to give us the ability to find comfort for but a moment. The place where our thoughts are directed is the basic nature of our reality. And if we choose to think good, if we choose to follow the light of the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh, then we have the ability to tell ourselves positive stories, to tell ourselves that yes, things will be better. The year will be better. The world will be better. My soul will be better. My relationships will be better. My trust in myself will be better. And by believing that they're going to be better, they become better. And Be'ezrus Hashem, next week we'll continue with another teaching of the Besht, with another singular teaching which will reveal the entirety of worlds within it, Be'ezrus Hashem. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.